If you open your Bibles, <laughs> this is going to take a minute to get used to, uh, open your Bibles to Romans 11. We're going to start here to catch where this theme comes from and just quickly connect this to some thoughts that Mark has been leading us through. And then the flow that Ricky and I have uh, designed tonight is that we're just going to ask each other questions uh, in a very informal sort of way. Uh, we did not script any of this aside from the questions, and so uh, we don't know where we're going to go with this with our answers. Uh, but we just essentially want to invite you into a discussion with one another on the subject that our brother Mark had intended to talk about tonight. Romans chapter 11 and verse 22 says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fail severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Some translations will say kindness. Some translations will say goodness. But that is the theme where Paul is laying out before those who are receiving his letter the choice of staying with God or not by two compelling motivations, the kindness of God or the goodness of God, but then the severity of God. And so I'm going to start tonight by asking a question to Ricky. What does the severity of God mean? Why did you lose that arm wrestling contest for you to get severity? <laughs> because I'm the weaker one. We'll go with that. No, yeah, we won't. Okay, anyway, and we won't say how I cheated. Okay, and then how do we see severity through the scriptures? When you look back at Romans chapter 11, understanding the context of what's taking place, Paul is just talking to the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews having been cut off because of unbelief, the Gentiles having been grafted in to the tree that has the root that goes all the way back to Abraham. And so when he comes to verse 22, he says in verse 21, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. That word severity is translated in a different word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. You see this word translated a different way, and so the Bible kind of defines itself. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority with which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. That word sharpness is the same word that is used in Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given us. And so when you look back to chapter 11 and verse 22, he's using sharpness, but the sharpness is to cut them off. So here the severity for the Jew would be cut off from the Abrahamic promise. And therefore that would be severity or the wrath of God for them. Another thing that's significant to notice about this is there must be a fundamental appreciation for wrath before we're ever going to be able to appreciate the plan of God for our salvation that's been revealed. If we don't fundamentally understand God is and the power of God and the wrath of God being a disposition that we learn not to make God angry and if we don't understand what makes God angry and don't understand the wrath of God, we're never going to fully appreciate, we're never going to fully appreciate the goodness of God. 
And so he talks about being cut off. We don't want to be cut off. We don't want to receive the wrath of God. We don't want to anger God. And so you see that throughout Scripture. We'll give some illustrations in just a little bit. But let's transition from that then and talk about the goodness. And so, Jordan, what does the goodness of God mean and how do we see his goodness through Scripture? Again, two, two different words are, are put here based on your translation. The New King James will say the goodness of God. Other translations will say the kindness of God. Uh, both words are used inter- interchangeably to talk about the positive fruits that flow from God, compelling one uh, to follow him. I'll give some verses just for reference. Psalm 118 and verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 145 and verse 17 says, The Lord is kind in all his works. Psalm 119 and verse 68 says, You are good and do good. And so God is called good, and since he is good, he is the author and definer of what is good. Uh, There's an occasion in Mark 10 when the young man comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember his response? Why do you call me good? There's only one who's good, and that is the Father. In other words, he's trying to redefine the shallow understanding of the rich young ruler. What does good really mean? And he defines it here. God is good, and so if you're calling me good, do you understand that you're also calling me God? And we struggle with this. We struggle with the idea of goodness because everything is good to us. In fact, the dictionary devotes six pages to the definition of good. Uh, You ask someone, there's a good movie and a good music and a good restaurant, and good is for you and I just based on whatever it is we feel, our tastes, our, our subject uh, emotions. And what's good to me may not be good to you. But for God in Exodus 33, when Moses asked to see his glory, in verse 18 he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. God doesn't determine good and evil like you and I do. How do I feel about this? I'm going to test both and see which one I like more. God's goodness is foundational to who he is. And if something aligns, we've used that language before, if something aligns with who God is, it's good. It's good. But if something is inconsistent with who God is and his nature and his character, it's not good. And so Psalm 34 verse 8 says, taste and see that God is good. For our second question there, how do we see the goodness of God through Scripture? There's so many ways. So many ways we see God's goodness demonstrated through the Bible. We're walking this quarter through, through Genesis. In the very beginning, we see God making something good out of nothing. And so he creates the world, and every day he says it's good, and then the last day he says it's very good. It's very good. In fact, Paul would say in 1, Thessalonians 4, uh, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 4 that what he creates is good and for our good. It's a really good world. I love this time of year. I was just talking with someone before. It's the changing of the seasons, and the weather's getting cooler. It's a brisk 84 degrees outside in Dallas, Texas. We'll see the leaves change for, for two hours before they fall off the trees. But, it, but it's good. It's not a functional world, although it is. It's a beautiful world. Uh, it's, a, it's a world created for our enjoyment and our delight. And so God is good in what he creates Uh, God is good in what he creates out of us. In fact, in your Bibles, go with me. I want you to read this one on the page with me. Go to Psalm 25. I want you to read this one right off the page. Psalm 25. In verse 7, David says, Do not remember the sins of my youth 
or my transgressions, according to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Perhaps one of the greatest evidences of the goodness of God is what he creates out of that which is broken, out of sinners. Uh, there, there will never be a more clear demonstration of the goodness of God than when Jesus, the one who was perfectly good, died for the world, for sinful man, hung on the tree. Uh, there, the kindness, the mercy, and the love of God was on full display. Uh, Paul would use the language of kindness in Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. When the kindness of God appeared, Christ died for our sins. We see... My good. <laughs> we see the goodness of God in what he makes, but he, we also see in what he makes out of us. And brethren, in many ways, we ought to be the answer to that question. How do you see the goodness of God? Look at my life. Look at where I am compared to where I used to be. That's what we're studying in our mornings with uh, our brother Mark. Look at Paul, but look at where he began. And look at the transformation that came out of the work of God. And so God's goodness is on every page of Scripture. I'm good. Let's go on to our next question so I can put this down. Okay. There's an issue that, that appears, though, in the minds of many when you talk about the goodness and severity of God. For a lot of people, it just seems like they tend to conflict with one another, that severity and goodness are opposing or opposite values. What would you say to that, Ricky J? Well, first I would say they're not opposing, they're complementary, complementary values. It's a whole lot more pleasant and a whole lot easier to just focus upon the goodness of God to talk about the love of God talk about the kindness of God we don't like to talk about God being angry we don't like to talk about the wrath of God but the wrath of God is as real as the love of God both both make his character they're complementary not everyone may know about sharpening a knife. But when you sharpen a knife, you take your blade and you cut one edge against the other on the whetstone. So you're cutting one edge against the other to arrive at the sharpness of that blade. It would seem that in sharpening that knife, cutting one edge against the other, you're making it dull. But rather than making it dull, you're making that blade sharp. When you think about the goodness or kindness and severity of God, they're not opposing one another, they're complementing one another. In fact, you don't have the nature of God without those two attributes. It takes both to complement his nature because God can have nothing to do with sin. He has a response. There's a particular theology that's prominent today that says if you can resist the love of God, then he's not sovereign. Yes, he's still sovereign because he holds out wrath. He holds out that sharpness. He holds out that judgment. And so when we think about that, think about the standpoint of a loving parent. How many times would our children think or say to us, after disciplining them in some way, whether corporal or when they get to be teenagers, take the keys away, and they would tell us that we are mean or that we are hateful 
But what are we doing? We're exercising the greatest demonstration of love we can by restraining them and holding them into account for a responsibility or a word they have broken. And so God has given his word. He has manifested his love, as Jordan said, in his goodness. The goodness of God hath appeared, bringing salvation and grace to all men. It's not just grace, grace, grace. Grace is absolutely there. But there's also the other side of that, and that is the wrath of God if we spurn his grace. In fact, 2 Peter and Jude will talk about both, talk about taking advantage of the grace of God. The Hebrew writer will talk about trampling underfoot the Son of God again. And he said it would be worse than it was in the days of Noah if we do that again. The severity of God is as real and as viable and as important to understand as it is to understand the love of God. Both of those make a complementary set. Without what you have is a caricature. If God is only love, all you have in his nature is a caricature of God. If God is only severity, all you have is a caricature of God. You remember what a caricature is? A caricature is where an artist takes one feature of the person they're drawing and exaggerates that beyond the normal features that are there. Sometimes they've done that with our presidents in the past. Or they do it with popular celebrities. They'll, take and they'll, they'll amplify one attribute or one physical thing that, that puts everything in distortion, but that's not who the person is. God's not a caricature. God has character and he has a nature and he can't deny his nature and he can't deny his character. And his character fits both of these. He is both good and he is severe. When I think back about the severity of God, I think back as it's demonstrated throughout the Bible. Think about the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you have goodness and severity. You have the goodness of God and that he offers everything to man. But he holds out a, a tree here. He holds out a law don't partake of the fruit of that tree because the day you do you will receive the severity of God you'll be put forth when I think of Moses as good as Moses was on that occasion when he disobeyed God the text says because you believe me not Moses had had appreciated the goodness of God all through God taking care of him frustrated though he may be with his petty group of people but here's the severity. You can't enter into the promised land. Part of the goodness was you get to see it. You think about that re rebellion of Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on. And you think about how they posed the insurrection against Moses. And they wanted another leader. Did they receive the severity of God when the earth opened up and swallowed them? And then just a few days later, 125,000 didn't learn that lesson. You had the severity of God. Well, if God's all love, then why, why, why do Dathan, uh, Korah, Dathan, and Bible on? Why are they suffering that? I think in the New Testament. We see the goodness and severity of God in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira. Here they sold the land. They got a great price for the land, but they lied to God about what they had done. And where was the severity of God? The severity of God is they were struck dead on the spot because they lied to God. We're not going to violate God's nature and God's character. 
and we don't want to run headlong into God's nature and God's character. God is both good and severe. But again, I repeat for emphasis sake, we only want to talk about the good side because that's the loving side and it's easier to talk about the loving side than it is the severity and the judgment side. But the judgment side is just as real. My own personal thought about Ecclesiastes 12, 13 that we quote quite often, fear God and keep his commandments. I think what that means is fear God. In fact, when you walk through the book of Deuteronomy, you see the word fear God. Fear, it means fear God. Fear his wrath. Mark closed last night with, our God is a consuming fire. Fear his wrath. That's not a comforting, positive theology. But that is the character of God. Goodness and wrath are complementary to define his attributes and his character. You don't have his character without both. All you have is a caricature. And so, come to that, some say... God changed from the Old Testament, severity, to the New Testament, goodness. Is that true? It's not. Next question. <laughs> All right, let's illustrate just for a moment. And, and really, you illustrated that so well in, in your last point. Uh, I'll give you just a glimpse. Uh, we're walking through the Old Testament. Now, again, we're in the book of Genesis I think oftentimes we look at the story of Noah as a scene of judgment. There's a lot of grace in the story of Noah. If God wanted to judge the world and end them right there, he could have given Noah a little dinghy boat or a capsule and just wiped them all out right there, killed all the earth. And he didn't. He provided the warning. He provided the instructions for a, for a vessel that would have taken nearly a century to build. Noah preached for nearly a century, and that boat was large enough to hold more than just Noah, his family, and the animals. There was room for any who wanted to listen and obey. There's a lot of grace in that story, a lot of love in that story. Uh, we could say, say the same thing about the wilderness, how much did God put up within the wilderness with grace and patience. Uh, the, the very story of Jonah being sent to the Ninevites and bringing a message of repentance to a people who had been anything but, but righteous, wicked completely. There are 30 verses in the Psalms that completely attribute the goodness and mercy of God. 30 different verses throughout the Psalms. One that I like is Psalm 136, which throughout it says, Give thanks for the Lord, for He is good. And the parallel phrase that's repeated is, For His steadfast love endures forever. So there's several glimpses of God's goodness all throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Ricky mentioned Ananias and Sapphira, a death on the spot, which responded with fear immediately in, in the presence of those who saw it. Uh, there's, there's the words of Jesus. I don't think sometimes we think about this. Jesus mentioned hell more than he mentioned heaven or prayer or kindness. He never once mentioned the word grace, but he said a lot about hell. In Matthew 5, verse 29, he says, if uh, if you are tempted, it'd be a lot better for you to pluck out your eye or to cut off your hand than it would be to go into hell. Severe language from Jesus. In Acts 17, verse 31, when Paul was preaching on uh, Mars Hill, he says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Uh, Ricky mentioned from, from Mark from last night in Hebrews 12, verse 29, that our God is a consuming fire. Go with me in your Bibles. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read this one together in Hebrews chapter 10.
don't think we, we, we know these verses, but they're not written on our hearts because we don't hang these verses in our homes. <laughs> we don't crochet them in our pillows. They're, they're not verses we turn to for comfort. In fact, sometimes these verses are there and they jar us. They make us uncomfortable. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't like that language. We like the comforting things to be held in the hands of God. And we sing songs like Hand in Hand with Jesus. But he paints a different picture about the hands of God and the place in the hands of God. I was thinking as you made the comment, we want to talk about the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God when it comes between us and God. But when someone's wronged me and hurt me, I am ready for that vengeful hand. I'm ready for the fire and brimstone. We are immensely inconsistent because we want grace and we want mercy for us in God. But as soon as anyone else is concerned, it's then we flip the tables and we want to talk about that God who's going to bring justice and wrath. And, and you can't have one without the other. It's inconsistent. So God's severity and goodness, or to your point, the, the perfect harmony of those characters of God is all throughout the Scripture. We, we don't need the verses that say he does not change because we see the fruit of the fact that he has not changed from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Do you have any comments you make on that? You did a good job. Oh, thanks. <laughs> All right. Why is it then? Why, why do you believe that some, maybe we need to re, reward that, Ricky J. Why are perhaps many so hesitant and resistant to seeing God's wrath or seeing God as a God of wrath? I would begin by saying because that means we're accountable. And that means there's someone to whom we are accountable. And we don't want to be held accountable unless it's accountable to what we want to be held accountable to. If it's what we want to be held accountable to, then that's fine. But if it's what somebody else wants, then we don't want to be held accountable. I think second thing that goes in that is we're just not aware or don't give enough concentrated thought to the terribleness of God. One of the definitions that Mark gave last night in the reverence part was terrible. God is terrible. That describes what it meant to worship or to bow down to him, was what Mark put forward last night. We're not aware. We don't take in consciously the awfulness of the wrath of God that hangs over, that hangs over every sinner. And therefore, there's a failure to appreciate who God is, a consuming fire, yet loves us enough to send his son. If we appreciate who God is and God's power and something about the righteousness of God and see how God dislikes sin and how angry God is about sin, then maybe maybe we would awaken to really appreciate the greatness of grace and goodness. But we fail to appreciate the greatness of grace and goodness because we're so hesitant to go where I just went. It's not pleasant. We would rather have the love. It's not pleasant. But God's wrath is not a slap on the wrist. It's not a pat, a gentle pat on the backside. God's wrath as we have demonstrated, is harsh. 
And so until we fully appreciate and stand appreciating the awfulness of God's wrath, we're never going to really be moved to appreciate the grace, as I've said twice. We're hesitant because we don't think about the awfulness of it. It's not pleasant, and it means we're held accountable to someone. And that's why in the religious world, you don't hear that talked about much. In fact, I just have to admit, if I look back to the predominance of my preaching over the years, I would say that has been a very lacking aspect of my preaching and that it, the goodness and the grace of God has been much more pronounced in my preaching. When you talk about the goodness and the grace of God, it's easier to move people. You preach on the goodness and grace of God and everybody will come out and they will tell you what a good sermon that is and how great a preacher you are. And we like to hear that. But when you preach about the awfulness of God and the terribleness of God, Everybody walks out with their tail tucked between their legs, with their head down, and nobody, nobody will look up at you and say anything. And if they say anything, it is a scowl. And we don't like that. But as Jordan said, the Lord spoke about that. And so sometimes we don't preach about it because it's not the pleasant thing. God's discipline in all aspects is not pleasant, but it holds us accountable. And God holds that out for us. That fear of God, that fear of his wrath is a tremendous motivator for us. I think I've told this story before, so forgive me for repeating it, but it best illustrates in my mind what I can. I remember when I was probably about 12 years old, maybe in 10, I told my older sister that I was afraid of dad. At that time it was daddy. And I didn't know she was going to be a blabbermouth. Because not soon after, long after that, mom and dad called me back to the bedroom, and I thought, well, what have I done now? I wasn't aware that I had done anything at that point, because usually when you're called to the bedroom and the door's closed, it's because there's severity coming. <laughs> and I thought, what have I done now? And dad asked me to sit on the bed. He said, Kim tells me, and I thought, what did she do? She went and told them. Kim tells me that you're afraid of me. Well, what were my options? I said, yes, sir. And I don't remember the rest of the conversation. It might have gone something like, well, I'm sorry, son. I don't want you to be afraid of me. But I learned growing up I was the kind of boy who needed to be afraid of the severity of my father. I need to have the severity of my father hanging over me because his love was not motivating enough for me. And I knew, I knew if I crossed the Jess Jenkins line that there was going to be severity. And I had received that severity many times. I didn't want it again. Fear of God's severity leads to obedience. Obedience leads to reverence. That fear of my father led to obedience, and that obedience led to reverence and respect. Fear of God's severity leads to obedience, and obedience leads to reverence. 
And so you have the value of God's severity. In fact, I would argue that severity of God contains grace. Because it's the thing, one of the things God uses to motivate us to come back to Him. And so, Jordan, how do you have something left? How does the wrath of God help us to appreciate faith, love, and grace then? Yeah. Now it's great we have love, grace, and mercy. We, we've been going around this. Let's, let's add a little bit to this and, and fill this, this uh, thought full. We love grace. Uh, we love the love of God. Uh, some of the anthems we sing most are about love and grace, to your point. Uh, I think we'd be hard-pressed to mention songs we sing that are not about love and grace and kindness. You probably think about a few. There's a sad day coming. You remember that one? I haven't sung that one in a while. Right? Prepare to meet thy God. That's that song is in prepare with joy, prepare soberly to, to meet thy God. We have some, but we don't sing them nearly as often as we do uh, I stand in all, uh, amazing grace, the love of God. The reality is, and, and going through it this afternoon has, has been enriching, an enriching reminder of this. We will not, it's not that we can't, we just simply will not appreciate the love or the grace or the mercy of God without understanding the wrath of God. You cannot. You cannot understand it fully, and you cannot fully appreciate it without it. For an illustration, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about a king and a servant, and a servant owed a debt to the king, and the king forgave the debt. The immense generosity of that king will not be understood until we understand the depth of the debt that servant owed. The, the, the one informs the other. In Luke chapter 7, there's this dinner taking place, and a woman comes in and is washing the feet of Jesus, and Simon, who invited Jesus, is bothered by this. And so Jesus tells him a story about two people who owed a great debt and asks Simon the question, when he forgives the debt, one owed little, one, one owed greatly, who will love him more? And Simon's response is the one who owed him more. That's the point. The more you understand the depth of sin, the more we understand what was at stakes, the more greatly we will understand and appreciate and long for that grace of God. Or, in other words, we will never truly understand and comprehend and appreciate our salvation until we wrestle with what it is we're being saved from. I think sometimes we, we kind of forget that God kind of bought us like we're that corduroy bear just on the shelf, just pitiful for us, just waiting for someone to buy us. Not the fact that we were destined for doom. Romans 5 and verse 9, that we were justified by his blood, saved by him from the wrath of God. Or 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10, he who delivered us from wrath to come. Or maybe the simplest one, you could do this one with me, we could do it in our minds. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, and we got that. But none of that matters until we can finish the next phrase. Should not perish. <laughs> and you think about what that means. It will keep us up at night, and we need to let it keep us up at night. If we want to know grace, and we want to understand grace, then get there. What was at stake in me apart from God was in the eternity away from him. An eternity in hell. <laughs> An eternity being punished for my sins. 
Should not perish means that's what I was facing. But God gave his son. But God gave Jesus. The wrath of God helps us to, to more greatly understand and appreciate why laws are in place. I use the analogy, you use the analogy of kids and parents. Mm-hmm. And every kid's mind, if mom and dad just let us do what we want to do, life would be so perfect. But have y'all seen the, the movie? I, the new one didn't do any justice to the old one. I, I love, I know it's creepy, but that old movie Pinocchio. <laughs> Isn't the scene where the boys go off to Pleasure Island thinking that no rules, no laws, no parents, and it's everything you ever wanted it to be. What happens when there's no laws and no rules and no guidelines? Well, you become like a beast. You become like an animal. You become the very thing that you desire. And you think about it, Psalm 73 paints that that picture because he said, I was reasoning like a beast. I was thinking about those who had wealth and prosperity and food, and, and they don't care for God. And the end of that, he says, when I came to worship, I I understood therein, I was reasoning like them. Without laws, without rules, we're no no different than the beasts of the field, than our dogs and our cats and the animals around us. But we were made for more than that. We were made in the image of God. And that image comes with high expectations. That image comes with a holy calling. There are rules and there are guidelines, but those rules and those guidelines far help us to greater understand and appreciate the end result of following those rules and those guidelines. Children understand it later. I see why those rules were in place and they were an act of love to keep me from what I was going to become. But for us for today, if we really want to stand on that grace, to preach that love, we will not get there until we understood what that love, what that grace was in place for. C.S. Lewis made the statement, what did you want God to do? Leave them alone? Hell is God leaving them alone. The wrath of God leads to that punishment where you, God leaves them alone. And so we were not made to be left alone. And that, that really is hell then, right? Yeah. If, if 2 Thessalonians 1, away from the presence of the Lord, yeah. uh, the Lord is simply giving us what it is we pursued and wanted in this life. Yes. If you want a life without me, then you'll have an eternity without me. Yeah. Absolutely so. All right, our next question that is in this vein of thought is why, why does any of this matter? And, and I think this is a larger context question, Ricky J. but why, why does this matter? Why does it matter to God about severity and goodness? And then why then should it matter to us? On the first part, why does this matter to God? I invite you to Romans chapter 3. And as you're turning there, my short answer to that is, is because God wants us to have fellowship with him. God created us so he could have fellowship with us. God did not create us to be separated from him. It was never God's intent or God's desire that we be separated from him. We were created to be in fellowship with him. Why does it matter to God is because he's lost fellowship with man. The man he created and in whom he breathed the breath of life and created a soul like him. But in Romans chapter 3, when you hear this statement in verse 23, backing up just a moment in chapter 1 Paul began in verse 18 for the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness 
And so then he talks about the Gentiles and he comes down to verse 32 and said, they know what they're doing. They know good and well what they're doing. And yet they did it anyway. You know, most of the time when we disobey God, we know what we're doing. And we do it anyway. And then he comes to the Jew in chapter 2 and that old Jew is telling Paul, sick them on that Gentile because, man, you're giving them fits. You're coming down on them. But then he said, well, wait a minute. If you look back in chapter 2, just a moment, I'll get to chapter 3. He said, verse 4, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But accordance with your heart and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath of the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. They're treasuring up for themselves. <laughs> okay, here's the old Gentile. He knew what he was doing, but you Jews, you're treasuring up the wrath of God. You get that imagery? The treasuring up the wrath of God. They're making deposits about the wrath of God. And he said, there's going to come tribulation and anguish. That's not just a hangnail. That tribulation has to do with all kinds of calamity, and the anguish has to do with intense pain that's going to come. God doesn't want to have to do that. And so he makes provision for that in chapter 3. In verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth. And this is a passage Kevin talked about Sunday morning. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And what that simply means is God made a provision for us to be right with him. And the provision was that the provision is the blood of Jesus Christ. However you define those terms, the terms all come down to one thing. He made the provision for us to have fellowship with Him. Because He's going to be just and the justifier. We can be one or the other. We can't be both. If one of my grandkids are at the house, and you know how, you, how your kids do? They, they come up and you tell them, don't go there. And they do that. And I, I told you don't go there. And they do it again. If you do that again, I'm going to dust your britches. And they look at you and go, again? And then I say, well, that's all right. I know you didn't mean it. <laughs> I know you won't do it next time. Well, that wasn't just, but I justified but if the first time one of them does it and says, don't do that, he does it again, I'm just when I enforce the penalty. You know, if you tell a two-year-old that's learning to be in, begin to walk, don't you fall again. <laughs> Get ready. Going to fall again. Well, we fail, didn't we? And we fail again. But God doesn't want to leave us there. He's going to be both just and a justifier. He holds that out for us. And the reason it should matter to us is because we don't want to be on the wrath side of God. God made the provision so we could have fellowship with Him. And we should be so, so pensively struck 
by the severity of God and His goodness, as He says in chapter 2, that leads us to repentance, that our hearts would turn to Him pleading, pleading, please forgive. The reason it matters to us is because our fellowship with God hinges upon Him forgiving us. And His forgiving us hinges upon the sacrifice of His Son. And so, Jordan, I would ask you then, coming down, what response do these characteristics demand of us? That's what's implied in Romans eleven twenty two is that the severity and the goodness or kindness of God is in place to prompt a response. Or in other words, these characteristics of God by design demand a response from those who see them or receive them. And so maybe walking it through backwards, the goodness or the kindness of God, Psalm 116 and verse 12 says, How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? What should the goodness of God, what response should we, uh, should we respond with? What, what response should come from those who have tasted the goodness of God? In one sense, repentance, in your Bibles, you're right there in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, if you're still there, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul says, do you, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, the long-suffering of God ought to be something that motivates us to turn from our sin. You think about the prodigal son. In Luke 17, when he came to his senses, what brought him home is, boy, my dad's really going to give it to me. He's going to pull off his belt and he's going to beat me. What brought him home is, if my father is this good to servants, I would be better off as a servant in the house of my father than alone in the pig pen in the far country. It was the goodness of the Father that brought him home. And I think for a lot of us, that's what brought us home. Mm -hmm. If God is this good, this patient, this merciful, I'm, I, I must come home to him. It should respond in good deeds, that we imitate him, that Titus 2 and verse 14, he redeemed us from lawless deeds, so we would be zealous in good deeds. Or Galatians 6 verse 10, if you have opportunity, do good. In other words, I've tasted God's goodness, and the response is, I'm going to do good. I'm going to use my time and my talents for good. And then ultimately, it ought to respond in thanksgiving. Uh, Psalm 107 and verse 1 and 2 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we need to. We need to more often than we do. Uh, we were listening on the way over here. One of the, the hymns I'm loving more and more now, and you'll find out in a few months why is the old hymn, O Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a phrase in there, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. I love that language. God is so good, I can't leave him. His goodness demands my faithfulness, my steadfast devotion to him. And that ought to be our response. God is so good to me, so patient to me, so gracious to me. All that I have and I give belongs to him. Now, the wrath of God, to give a, a contrast. Psalm 119 and 120. Again, a verse that we don't, we're not very familiar with. My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. Uh, the wrath of God is intended to, to strike us with fear, to impress upon us how serious sin is to God, how important this life is, how important every decision is, the priority of God, the, the immense value of his holiness, 
And the reality, we are but temporary here on, on earth, and we are heading somewhere eternal. It is in the moment to wake us from our place, from our status, and to realign us with what matters the most. I would love, if you can imagine, Ricky was talking about little kids, if my little daughter Emma, and there was a car coming to say, sweetheart, I have a bar of chocolate inside. Please get out of the street and come inside. And maybe that would work. But the closer that car came, I'm not going to woo her with chocolate. But I would scream and shout and grab and drag to do all that I could to get her from harm's way. And God has sought to woo and to win us by his love and grace and favor and kindness. But God has also sought to, not just to correct us, right? That, that wrath is there for those who break his laws. But there's a sense in which God is seeking to wake us up. Ezekiel 18 says, The Lord takes no pleasure in, in the death of the wicked. God takes no delight in those who are lost. And that severity and that wrath is there because God does not want anyone apart from him for all eternity. Ricky J. wrote this. I don't remember when you said you wrote the sermon, but I pulled that quote because it was a great quote. He says, The Old Testament intends to take those things you cannot see about the wrath of God and how God deals in his wrath and when God was dealing with men directly and paint for us a picture so we can see what is revealed for us concerning the wrath of God on vessels of wrath. I love that. Just like the goodness, it is intended for us to turn from our sin, to be devoted to God, to walk with God ever more faithful, just in a very compellingly different way. Nadab and Abihu is not an encouraging passage, but it is motivating. It's very motivating. The story of Noah is not a very encouraging passage, but it's very motivating. It's very motivating. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, paints the picture of Noah and the destruction of the world, and then he turns to what is to come with Jesus, and he says that all of it, the earth and the elements, are all going to be destroyed in, in fire. And then his response in 2 Peter 3.11, it's one of those passages we need to get in our minds. If all these things, if everything is to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let the fact of the, of the reality of God's judgment wake you up and get you living right. If his goodness will not do it, perhaps the reality that you will stand before him one day and eternity at stake, maybe that will do it for us. Ricky J., what do you have in response? Salvation is defined in reference to the peril. We're saved from something. We're saved from the wrath of God to enjoy the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. We're saved from something. When we define the peril, salvation is defined in reference to that peril. We're saved from our sins. That's our peril. Well, for our last question, we're going to end right here. Uh, we're just going to round robin this back and forth for you guys in the back. I don't know how you want to do the, this. We're just going to go back and forth for a minute. You know, we, we always got to end with walking this off the page. What, what are we going to do to make this practical to us? What, what are the practical um, applications of a study like this and so that's our question what are some of the practical applications of seeing and understanding the severity and the goodness of God I'll let you you start us off Richard. if we keep this in the theme of what Mark has been talking about in the meeting reverence for God enhancing our reverence for God 
then appreciating the goodness and severity of God will help us appreciate the reverence of God all the more. And if we reverence God, as we ought, then we'll appreciate the goodness and severity of God all the more. And so the first thing I would say is, is it, it helps us appreciate the reverence. The second thing I would say is uh, Paul uses this statement in 2 Corinthians 7, and it's referred to, as I mentioned a while ago in Romans chapter 2, godly sorrow worketh repentance. If we really tr truly understand and can get some grasp on the wrath of God and the goodness of God, God holds those two inducements out. Not just one, both. He holds those two inducements out to call men to repent, to produce godly sorrow in the heart of men so that we have more of us that have the heart of Joseph who said, how can I do this thing and sin against my God? When we talk about the reverence of God, the goodness and severity of God, I think also it helps us appreciate something that we all struggle with in one shape, form, fashion, or the other. And that is an addiction. I don't care what the brand of the addiction is. If I truly have that reverence for God, and I truly understand that severity of God, but the goodness that is encapsulated in that. I'm not going to nestle up as close as I can to sin. I'm going to be as far away as I can from it. If I have an addiction, that addiction is nothing compared to the severity of God. Just a few thoughts I had. No, that was great, Ricky J. One, and Mark made the point yesterday, I need to make sure the way I see God and view God is in line with what God has said, not with what man has said or what I think. The words he said it, and I love the way he said it, my view of God needs to come from revelation, not imagination. And we need to be so very careful. It's very easy to portray a picture of God and an image of God that's just half portrayed. It's empty. Maybe it's leaning on one side of grace or love or mercy, or maybe it's all wrath and there's no goodness. Brethren, let's let God be the one who shows us who he is and stand there and stand upon it. I need to see God for who he's revealed himself, and if I'm talking about God or portraying him, I need to portray him as such. I need to be very careful with God's name and who he is to make sure I am I'm portraying him correctly. And then with the severity of God, I think ought to remind all of us, and, and your statement about addiction was so true, this is not a game. Uh, th this life is not a game. Every day we are taking another step and another breath towards eternity. Whether you realize it or not, today you are closer to heaven or hell. You are closer to meeting your God than you've ever been before. One day we will stand before the throne of God. Brethren, this is not a game. It matters. Every choice matters. Every decision matters. We are talking about an eternity with God. And that severity of God is just as real as that love that we lean on and trust on. And sometimes we need that wake-up call. We get caught in our fog of daily living and daily routines, and we just sort of forget that this is just but a moment preparing us for what is really yet to come. And I say one more thing before I kick it off to you for a final word. The two things I would say, a passage you used, and we both used once, 
already. For God so loved the world, but our God is a consuming fire. And I know we've emphasized a lot about severity tonight, but we're never going to appreciate the goodness of God until we understand the severity and awfulness of facing him in sin. And that within itself is an opportunity for grace to take advantage of. Can we, uh, can we, can I do that? I could use this though, isn't that kind of? In your Bible, let's go to Acts 9. We're getting right here tonight. Acts chapter 9, we're going to end here. Thank you so much for, for letting us just share with this with you. I, this is not the norm. This is not what we'd anticipated. I'll be honest, when Ricky and I were talking about this and looking at Mark's title, the first thought was, how are we going to find, in the short time we have, things to say about the goodness and severity of God? And then very quickly it came to, how are we going to weed this down <laughs> so that we're not here all night talking about the goodness and severity of God? It's really important. And to Ricky's point, that which he just made, the more we lean on and trust on the love and grace of God, Titus 2 teaches us that that grace and that love compels us to turn from sin, away from sin. The grace of God has appeared denying us to, uh, or instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And so the more we lean and understand God's grace, the less and less we should pull, or the more and more we should pull away from the world. I want to leave you with one verse that came out of this morning's study. Acts 9 verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. we got some visitors with us tonight. We're really glad you're here. We're really, really glad you came. The Campbell Road family, this is for us right here. If this church is going to increase and to continue on, if we are going to grow internally in our walk with God, if we are going to continue in our progress towards home, it will be because we walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We must never lose sight of that. And everything that we do, we treat God as who He is. He is God and He is holy. And we will fear Him and revere Him and honor His words in everything that we do, everything that will always come first. But we are a people who never forget that wonderful and marvelous love and grace that was given to us in Calvary. We're brought back every Lord's Day, and it drives us forth every day. That comforting love poured forth through these words of the Holy Spirit. So, brother, if we're going to succeed, it's because we're walking, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We've done so so far. May Lord, the Lord bless us as we keep walking in this beautiful path. If you're here tonight and you, you're not right with the Lord, tonight is a wonderful night through the things that we have talked about and discussed to just refocus, refocus. Maybe I have not been taking this life as seriously as I should, and I need to make a change tonight. Maybe I've not taken the severity of God as seriously as I should, and I've allowed some decisions and choices and habits in my life to take control, and tonight is a wonderful night, a wonderful night to leave here reconnected, making right choices, seeking God's forgiveness, and leaving right with Him. If you've not started your journey with God, 
Scripture teaches that if you're willing to turn from those sins to confess Him as Lord and put Him on in baptism, you can leave a child of God. But if you are here and you're not right with God, can I, can I beg with you as much as possible? Do not leave here tonight. Do not leave here tonight unsure if you are right with your God. We will talk with you. We will pray with you. We will open the Word of God together with you. But please do not leave here tonight unsure if you are right with our wonderful God. If we can help you in any way, we're going to do it right now. Let's do it as we stand and as we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.